as you remember in chapter 18, starting with verse 1, we saw how Paul arrived in the city of Corinth. And when we read uh, his letter that is sent to Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, we understand something of the mindset uh, with which he arrived in Corinth. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes that he arrived, he came to Corinth in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Uh, Paul, he feared for his safety. Uh, as you all know, everywhere he went with the gospel, he was persecuted. He was uh, the, made the subject of violence. And so he feared for his safety. But Jesus promised to protect him, and he did protect him. And we also saw Paul last week that the lack of gospel progress really discouraged him. But just when Paul thought that his ministry was stuck and was going nowhere, Jesus saved many people in Corinth. And so what we saw in last week's passage was indeed, as Paul writes elsewhere, God's grace was sufficient for Paul, and God's grace was, God's power was made perfect in Paul's weakness. And we, we, you and I, we also need that reminder. And we also need that encouragement today. And so that is what we are going to continue to see in this passage. And we are going to see uh, how God's strength was made, in, made perfect in Paul's weakness. First by noting that Paul, Paul planted. Paul planted. And so in verse 18, we read, after this, Paul stayed many days longer. So you remember, um, I explained to you last week that the Roman emperor Claudius, he uh, issued an imperial edict in which he granted Judaism the status of legal religion. Knowing this, the Jews in Corinth banded together, the unbelieving Jews, they banded together against Paul and accused Paul before the Roman proconsul Gallio, saying that Paul was the ringleader of a new and illegal religion. It was a very calculated move designed to get Paul into legal trouble because Judaism was a legal religion but not anything else. So their accusation against Paul was that he is starting a new religion. This is not Judaism. But actually, if we understand the situation more accurately, you realize that it was Paul who was true to the faith and the hope of the Jewish fathers and the prophets. He was the one who was true to Judaism. And it was the unbelieving Jews who had, in fact, left Judaism when they rejected the consolation of Israel, Jesus Christ. When they rejected God's Messiah, David's son, it was the unbelieving Jews who had rejected Judaism to follow a man-invented religion. And it was the unbelieving Jews who were, in fact, in violation of Claudius' edict. 
But when they brought the accusation against uh, Paul, the Roman proconsul Gallio, he refused to censure Paul. Um, and what that meant was that the gospel under Gallio had legal protection and the Jews could no longer openly harm Paul in Corinth. And that enabled Paul to stay many days longer in Corinth. Uh, eventually, however, uh, Paul uh, left Corinth. Paul went to uh, Sancrie, which is a seaport about five miles uh, southeast of Corinth. And so if you want to go to Syria, that is the seaport from which you would embark. And there we read that Paul cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Uh, very likely, this is a reference to the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. And when you read Numbers chapter 6, uh, you read about a Nazarite vow, which is a, a special period, a time period that, uh, that is devoted to the Lord. And... At the end of this special time period, uh, the person who had engaged himself, committed himself under a vow, would cut his hair, and he would burn his hair. And the Nazarite vow was often associated with thanksgiving for a blessing, and it was also associated with uh, times when you were making a petition, a request for future blessing. And it seems to me it was very appropriate. Uh, perhaps Paul uh, took this Nazarite vow in order to give thanks to the Lord for the protection and the blessings that he had enjoyed in Corinth. Or perhaps uh, he was asking for a continued blessing and protection as he left Corinth for other fields. Uh, whether it was thanksgiving or petition for the future, I think they are both very appropriate, aren't they? Because Paul knew that everything that was accomplished in Corinth was accomplished despite his weakness and because of God's grace. And so here we find Paul having taken a vow, either thanksgiving or request for the future. I don't think it needs to be one or the other. Uh, because the Nazarite vow is, is an expression of a worshiper's dependence, acknowledgement of God's grace. Now, so Paul left Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila, and on the way to Syria, they came to Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus is that a city which is now uh, in what we now call Turkey. And so we read here that Paul went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And the Ephesian Jews were more receptive to Paul than the Jews elsewhere. And they asked them to stay for a longer period. You know, if I can put it this way, it's a, this is what preachers pray for, for people to be receptive, for people to ask you, please stay longer, please teach us more. This is what preachers pray about and dream about. But surprisingly, Paul declined. And Paul said, I will return to you if God wills. And it seems to me what is happening is that if you remember Acts chapter 16, verse 6, 
you read there that, that Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Asia is that part of the world where Ephesus is located. And it seems to me that Paul is very mindful of the Holy Spirit's instructions to him. And he wants to discern God's will before he commits himself to Ephesus. That's why Paul says, I will return to you if God wills. Uh, you know, some Christians, uh, they often say, Lord willing. Um, I'm sure you have heard people say, Lord willing, I will do this, I will do that. Of course, they're getting, the, uh, getting that from the book of James. And I think that's actually a very helpful thing because when we say, when we preface our plans and our desires saying, Lord willing, that, that can really help us to put our minds in the right frame to understand that we as believers, we as God's people, we we will only desire and we will only plan to do what the Lord blesses and what the, word, what the Lord calls us to do. And that's the mindset that we are seeing here from Paul. He promised them, I will return to you if God wills. And so Paul left Ephesus for Caesarea and went up and greeted the church in Jerusalem and then went to Antioch in Syria and after spending some time there, uh, Paul once again set out to return to Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. And I can't help but wonder, you know, when Paul left Ephesus saying, I can't stay, but if the Lord wills, I will come back to you. Did you notice how he left Priscilla and Aquila behind in Ephesus? Paul knew he couldn't stay until he could discern God's will for him. But he obviously cared deeply about the Ephesians. He could not leave them without help. And so I, I wonder what's going on through Paul's mind and heart as he's uh, once again visiting these places that he had preached the gospel before, strengthening the brothers. He's visiting Galatia and Phrygia. And I am sure that Paul's heart and thoughts often return to Ephesus, that he often prayed for the saints that he left behind. And I'm certain that he longed to be there with them in person. But you know, once again, what Paul could not, God did. What Paul was unable to do, God himself did. And that brings us to the second point this morning. First, Paul planted. Second, Apollos watered. Now, as you may have well guessed, the, the title of this morning's sermon and the section headings come from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. There, Paul uh, writes... What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So you see what's happening here. Paul, 
He longed to be with the Ephesians. He cared deeply for them. He could not leave them without resources. So he left behind his two beloved friends and his partners, Aquila and Priscilla. And because Paul could not be in Ephesus himself. But God brought Apollos to Ephesus. Now we read that the Apollos was from Alexandria of Egypt. And Alexandria uh, of Egypt, there was a large Jewish population, and it was a very famous city because about 200 years before, the Jews in Alexandria translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, what we now call the Septuagint. So the Jews in Alexandria were famous for their love of scriptures and their competence in scriptures. And we can plainly see that when Apollos from Alexandria arrives in Ephesus, we see that Apollos embodied the best traits of the Alexandrian Jews in his deep love of scriptures and in his competence in the scriptures. And Luke tells us here that Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord And being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, John, you remember, he came as a forerunner to the Messiah. He came to prepare the way for Jesus. And if you read the Gospels, for example, Matthew chapter 3, we read that Then Jerusalem and all Judea were baptized by John in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now at this point, this uh, Acts chapter 18, we are roughly in the years 51 through 54 AD in the first century. And we know this because in the previous passage, we read about the Roman proconsul Gallio. And Gallio is a figure, he's a character that is known to the students of history. And we know exactly in, during which years Gallio was the proconsul over Corinth. And so that really helps us to date uh, the, the time frame of these events to be around um, years 51 through 54 AD. And John, of course, came as a forerunner uh, for the Messiah Right about when Jesus began his public ministry, about or around the year 30 AD. And so it may be that Apollos was present when John was preaching and he was calling people to be baptized. And it's very possible and perhaps likely that Apollos was baptized by John as a child. And What is for certain is that Apollos was well acquainted with the baptism of John, and from that, he was able to proclaim Jesus and refute the Jews. And certainly, that seems to indicate that Apollos was familiar with what John said about Jesus. For example, in John chapter 1, verse 29, you remember how John saw Jesus, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. 
So when you look at John's ministry in its totality, when he called people to repent and be baptized, he was showing the Jewish people, he was teaching the Jewish people that they needed cleansing, that the infrastructure around the temple could not provide for them. John, as he called the Jews to repent and be, and be baptized, he was teaching them that you are in no better place than the Gentiles, that you are so used to looking down on. You too must be cleansed. And when John pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who take away the sin of the world, what John did was on the one hand telling the Jewish people, You need to be cleansed. And look, here is the one who can cleanse you. You are sinners. You must repent. And look, here is the one who can forgive you. Jesus. And it seems that Apollos was very familiar with that message. And he spoke boldly in the synagogue. But we also read very interesting that there were some gaps in Apollos' understanding. Uh, It seems that Apollos was familiar with John's testimony of Jesus, but perhaps not entirely aware of just how uh, Jesus takes away the sin of the world. And so Priscilla and Aquila, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And I think we can well guess just what they may have told Apollos, because we know very well, don't we, the content of the gospel message, as Paul has been proclaiming everywhere. The gospel message is this that we are all sinners. That includes the Jewish people who were raised in scripture-loving, scripture-read, scripture-studying homes, who uh, every week went to the temple or synagogues and offered sacrifices. Even they, with uh, with that great upbringing, even they were sinners in desperate need of God's forgiveness. We are all sinners. It doesn't matter how wonderful a background, how respectable a home you are reared, we are all sinners in desperate need of cleansing because we have all broken God's law. But the gospel message is that in the death of Jesus Christ, our sins are atoned for. The stain, the guilt, and the shame of our sin were laid on Jesus And our guilt were laid on Jesus, and Jesus died for our sins. And that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the sinners are justified, made righteous before God. And I'm certain that whatever else uh, Priscilla and Aquila may have told Apollos, it certainly included these central truths of the gospel. And they helped Apollos to see Jesus more clearly. And then Apollos was empowered, and he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. And you know how this was greatly appreciated by those 
who through grace had believed. There is a difference between being a sincere believer of the Lord Jesus Christ and being a mature believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The bar and the requirement to become a Christian is actually very simple. You need to know enough about God to know that He is holy, and you need to know enough about yourself to know that you are a sinner. And you need to know enough about Jesus to know that He is the Savior. And so in order to become a Christian, you don't have to know much. You just have to know a little bit about God and be honest about who you are and know that God has given you a Savior. So a person may become a Christian without knowing a whole lot about scriptures. But a person cannot stay that way. And what happens is that uh, with a lot of younger believers, uh, they are obviously, just because they are simply for the fact that they are new believers, they are often not well equipped to answer the unbelievers. And the lack of their foundation can shake their faith because they cannot answer objections and criticisms and questions. And that is why every believer must grow. And for a young believer without foundations, a well-instructed believer is such a blessing because a well-instructed believer can nurture and comfort young believers. Uh, In fact, that is what instruction is for. We are instructed in the things of scriptures. We learn the things of God in order to be nurtured and then to nurture. That's what instruction is for. We receive instruction in order that we might grow and we receive instruction so that we might help other people to grow. And that is what Apollos is doing. And so thirdly and finally, We saw that Paul planted, Apollos watered, and thirdly, God gave the growth. God gave the growth. Now, if you see this passage, nurturing of the believers is very much the point of this passage. Notice how Paul, he went around strengthening all the disciples. He is nurturing Believers, equipping them, helping them to grow onto maturity. And notice how Apollos came to Ephesus and he greatly helped the believers. He is nurturing, he is helping them to reach maturity in the Lord. And of course, Jesus is the Good Shepherd. And to mix up a metaphor a little bit here, The good shepherd feeds his flock. The good shepherd nurtures his flock. And so God sent Paul into the field to plant, and he sent Apollos to water. But God is the one who gave the growth. And we can focus specifically here on how God used Priscilla and Aquila to nurture Apollos. 
Now it's interesting the fact that Priscilla is mentioned before Aquila, and and many commentators believe, and I think they were right. Uh, the reason that Priscilla is mentioned before her husband is that she played a more significant role in instructing Apollos more accurately. Um, you know, women who love the Lord and love His Word are tremendous blessings to preachers. Uh, and if you allow me to become, be a little bit more, a little bit autobiographical, uh, let me put it to you this way. Wise and godly women who love the Lord and love His Word have been tremendous blessings to me in my formation as a preacher. Uh, because you see, ladies, your ministry is not from the pulpit. But that does not mean that you are not ministering God's word. I think we hear so much about the bitter discussions about whether women can preach. And what's lost is the fact that, that, that godly and wise women minister God's word in so many ways. And they minister God's word even to the preachers. Because when I, as a young pastor, saw your faith, how receptive you were to God's word, and how so thoughtfully you reflected upon God's word and asked good questions. And when I saw the fruit that God's word was bearing in your life, these things have been all very form formative influence uh, on me. And I think Paul touches on that. Um, it, at the end of Romans, he mentions a lady and he calls her my mother. <laughs> Likely when Paul became a Christian, he was disowned by his family. And there was this wonderful Christian lady who took Paul into her home and loved her, loved him as her own son. And I think that's what's happening with Apollos here as well. Priscilla and Aquila. And I think this is a case of this wonderful, committed Christian couple, but Priscilla in particular, taking young Apollos and loving him. You see, they could see that Apollos was not very accurate on some matters, but they had such grace and love in their heart that instead of embarrassing him publicly, uh, they took him aside and, and instructed him to know more accurately the ways of the word, ways of the Lord. And you see here how the ministry of grace, the ministry and the grace of the word uh, flow in both directions. You know, no doubt Apollos quickly became the teacher for Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, but Priscilla and Aquila, by their faith and by their maturity, they had so much to give to Apollos in his formation as a faithful and fruitful uh, preacher. They loved him and they nurtured him. And that's God's design. And that's what we are seeing here. So if I can put it this way, let me say it like this. 
no one, no one possesses all the gifts and the graces that we need, whether for ourselves or for the body of Christ. The Ephesians, they needed Paul, but not just Paul. They needed Apollos. Paul needed Priscilla and Aquila. And Paul benefited from them, and so did Apollos. Apollos needed Priscilla and Aquila because God nurtures believers through other believers. And if I can manage to say this without sounding corny and sappy, let me put it this way. You need me, and I need you. I am God's gift to you, and you are God's gift to me. You see, we are God's gifts to each other. And God uses the body of Christ, loving believers who come alongside each other to support, to nurture, to love. We are God's gifts to each other, and that is how God grows us. It's beautiful. So you need me, and I need you. God has given me to you, and he has given you to me, that we may together grow unto maturity. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your instructions this morning, and we, we pray that you would help us to be available and willing and teachable, that we may give ourselves away freely and gladly for the good of your church and for your people. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would bring to us Believers, men and women, who can supply and fill up the gaps that we have in our own lives, that we may together grow into maturity. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would be with us in this fellowship, in this church, that we may together love you and together serve you and together enjoy the glory and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.